Then in your Bibles this evening, we would encourage you to turn to our reading of Scripture, which is taken from Psalm 42. If you're using your pew Bible, you can find this on page 646. In addition to the reading from Scripture of Psalm 42, we'll also be reading from our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10. And in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find this on page 211. Of course, the Psalms are written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, but they also give expression to the experience of the Christian soul. Uh, And so what is written in Psalm 42 is infallible and is authoritative, but it's also real. It's the real experience that the psalmist had as he encountered the various circumstances, the various trials, maybe even the various perplexities of life. But you'll notice that he concludes by speaking to himself, by having an internal dialogue with his own soul, encouraging his soul to have hope, to have a certain confidence. A hope in the Bible is not some vague wish. We might say, well, I hope we have a snow day from school. Uh, We might say, well, I hope this happens, but we don't really have any solid, confident reason for expectation. But in the Bible, the word hope is different. It is a solid, confident reason for expectation, and the reason for the confidence is always found in the nature of God and in the promises uh, that He gives in His Word. And so the psalmist concludes uh, this psalm by encouraging himself to have this spiritual confidence as he reflects upon the character of God, a theme that we will pick up as we consider tonight the doctrine of providence. And so Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the lands of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mazar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Thus far for this evening, our reading from the Scriptures We then turn to Lord's Day 10. Question 27 asks us, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, 
but by His fatherly hand. And then on the next page, question 28, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? And the answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will they can neither move nor be moved. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 42 and verses 5 and 11 encourages himself but also encourages us tonight with a simple refrain that I hope continues to echo in the ears of our soul as we make our way throughout the week that lies ahead. Hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. My simple goal this evening, if the Lord enables us, is to encourage all those who hear these words to hope in God. More specifically, to hope in God because of His providence. Because of His providence that includes three aspects or three elements, preservation, cooperation, and government. Those are the three common elements of providence that many a Reformed theologian distinguishes as they search out the Holy Scriptures. They see revealed in Scripture that God, by His almighty power, upholds all things, that which we call preservation. They see also in the pages of Scripture that God uses secondary means, that which we call concurrence or cooperation. And Reformed theologians, as they read and reflect upon the revelation of the Word of God, see also that God uses the movement and the activity of all things to funnel from eternity past down through the halls of history to that predetermined end, the glory of Christ and the glory of those who belong to Christ, that aspect which we call government. And so consider briefly this evening this theme, deliverance, by way of divine providence. Well, notice, first of all, providential preservation and patience. Secondly, providential cooperation and thankfulness. And then thirdly, providential government and confidence. You notice that the points have an and, which they typically don't. We were taught in our homiletics that points should not have ands. Points should be one point. Uh, But I put an and in there because of the way that our catechism deals with providence. Our catechism deals with providence, identifying the theological truths of providence, but then immediately connecting the practical benefit from a belief in providence. And I want to try to combine the aspects of providence with the practical benefit. That's why we have preservation and patience. The knowledge that God preserves all things ought to give us a sense of patience. And then secondly, we'll look at cooperation and thankfulness. The recognition that it is God's hand ultimately behind the secondary causes that benefit us in life ought to give us a certain spirit of thankfulness. And then thirdly, government and confidence, knowing that God is moving all things throughout history uh, to that grand culmination with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ushering in of the new heaven and the new earth, that ought to give us a certain spiritual confidence. So first of all then, 
providential preservation and patience. What is this aspect, this part, so to speak, of providence that we refer to as preservation? Preservation is the theological word that we use to describe that continual activity of the God who created all things, whereby He maintains or upholds all things. Uh, Last Sunday evening, we had the opportunity to look upon the biblical truth revealed so clearly in a variety of scriptural passages, especially in the opening chapters of Genesis, that our God, the eternal God, when it was the appropriate time for Him, called all things into existence by the power of the word of His mouth. He did so calling all things into existence out of nothing, And he chose to structure the unfolding of human history to use a pattern of six ordinary 24-hour days with an evening and with a morning, setting into place the rhythmic cycle of history. But upon the conclusion of that creative activity, the Scriptures record that God rested. But that should not be interpreted as meaning that God ceased from any type of activity in regards to His creation. Because God, having created all things, yes, He ceased from His creative activity, but He did not cease from His preserving activity. So it is the power of God that is behind the existence of all things. Theologically, we say that God alone is self-existent. He has aseity. He exists on the grounds of His own being. He's in need of nothing outside of Himself. Nothing causes Him to exist. To say it bluntly, God does not need us. He does not need any aspect of creation. He's not dependent upon anyone. All of creation, by contrast, is continually dependent upon God Almighty. And the Apostle Paul tried to drive this point home when he preached in Athens. Uh, To both the Epicureans and the Stoics, he said that in relationship to God, in Him that is in God, we live and we breathe and we have our very being. And that's true of every single element and aspect of creation. The largest beast of the field and the smallest existing molecule are all continually dependent upon the power of God for existence. And we need to be reminded of that, especially in our secular culture and in materialism and naturalism, where we are prone to think that which we see is all that there is, and that which we see, we think somehow we can explain by mere scientific observation and empirical reason. But behind all that we see and behind all that exists, there is the spiritual reality of the power of Almighty God. Well, someone may ask, how can you be so sure that this spiritual power of God, this continual spiritual power of God is behind all things that exist? And our answer is unashamedly, we know this to be certain and to be true based upon the revelation that we find from God Himself in His Word. Yes, scientists, they can study this world, and we're thankful that they do, and they bring forth many good observations But with all of their study, man's reason cannot find the true cause of the existence of all things apart from the revelation of God and His Word. And we give just one example chosen from Psalm 104, verse 27 and 28. And there in Psalm 104, the psalmist describes all sorts of 
created beings. And he gives this conclusion, these all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. Everything that exists waits upon God as the cause of their existence. The psalmist continues, what you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. I remember when our children were younger, although there are parallels today even when they're older, and when it would be dinner time, especially if they were really hungry, the eyes of children look expectantly to their mother. And they wait, hopefully patiently, sometimes impatiently. But when they were toddlers, when they sat in their high chair, they're basically completely helpless. They cannot provide the food. They cannot prepare the food. When they're young toddlers, they cannot even bring the food from the plate into their own mouth. And so they watch, and they look, and they anticipate the care of their mother. Now, I know the analogy falls short on various levels, but that's something what the psalmist is getting at. These all wait upon you, O Lord. This is the element of providential preservation. Recognize, then, our utter dependency upon the power of God. And yet we're so prone in our foolishness to think that we are self-reliant. And our culture, it stokes our ego and it says, you are self-reliant. And perhaps this is especially true of an American independent spirit. The spirit of the frontiersmen of a former day. That you are the determiner of your destiny. That's what our culture would tell us. But in contrast, we are completely and constantly and utterly dependent upon God for every breath which we draw, every beating of our heart. And yet when we recognize this reality of preservation, we can then have a certain patience. Psalm 42, verse 5 and 11, again, hope in God. This patience... Uh, I met a young man in the, the narthex or the foyer. I'll leave his identity undisclosed at this point. He was looking out the window, and I asked him, I said, are you counting people tonight? He said, no, he was waiting, waiting for his mother. I said, ah, waiting for a woman. That's not the idea here of patience, just waiting, you know, thinking the seconds are ticking by, the minutes are going by. Patience here has this certain sense of a steadfastness, of an unmovable steadfastness. If I have an experiential knowledge of God's preservation of all things, I have a steadfast spirit today and also as I face tomorrow. A steadfast spirit, or even the word might mean a quietness of soul, in the midst of adversity. I believe we do well to recognize that there is diversity in life 
and at times there is much adversity in life. At times there are difficult and deep trials. The psalmist would have acknowledged that, and the psalmist does acknowledge that. You can think of Psalm 23, verse 4, and there the psalmist acknowledges uh, the possibility, and you might even say the certainty, of having to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And whether that's the final valley of physical death, or whether that is a broader category of the trials, the sorrows, the disappointments that we experience in this life, the psalmist was a realist. But you notice the steadfastness, the quietness of soul, the patience as he faced the prospect of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He said, yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he was confident in his own abilities to overcome the shadow of death? Because he thought he would somehow, because of his own wisdom, skirt around the shadow of death. No, his confidence, you notice, was based upon God, for you are with me. Included in that, your almighty, ever-present power upholds my soul, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. And at times, and perhaps this becomes more of an acute issue as we age, at times we can look upon the future and we can say, It appears that everything is falling apart in society, and sometimes we become characterized by just bemoaning the state of the affairs of the world. And while certainly we can offer analysis upon states of affairs, we ought to especially check ourselves that we do not give a certain despondent spirit as Christians We can be patient in adversity, steadfast. This ties in with this morning Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, that they would be strengthened in the inner man, that we might look at tomorrow and look at next week and look at next month, not as defeatists, but as those who are more than conquerors, not in and of ourselves, but in and through our God. And if you find yourself tonight overcome by fears, anxieties, dread, inner turmoil, I would just lovingly ask you, where are the eyes of your faith looking? I think so often of David as he marched out to face Goliath, and the whole armies of Israel, isn't that remarkable? None of them, and no doubt there were many a well-trained soldier in the army of Israel, And they had the same God, they had the same promises, but they were trembling, fearful, and frightened because they saw a giant in the valley. While as David went out with his instrument of warfare, a sling, and a few well-chosen pebbles, it's not as if Goliath was any smaller to David than to the rest of the soldiers of the camp of Israel. But David saw Goliath in comparison to God. And although Goliath was a giant of a man, even the most giant of obstacles, when viewed in relationship to the almighty power of God, are mere nothings. And as you face this week, dear Christian, I hope it is with the confidence that David had, a certain patience a certain steadfastness,
knowing that the almighty power of God is the cause that preserves all things. Well, in addition to preservation and patience, there is also the aspect that we consider in our second point, providential cooperation and thankfulness. What do we mean by cooperation? And and at times this is referred to as concurrence. Those two terms by theologians are used as synonyms. What we have in mind here is the biblical truth. Uh, Cooperation or concurrence describes the reality that God's almighty power ordinarily exercises itself through means. I say ordinarily because God's not bound to use the ordinary means. God has and can work miraculously, work and accomplish something outside or above or beyond the so-called natural laws. We think especially of some of the most important miracles that are the bedrock of the Christian faith, uh, of the supernatural conception of the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ without the will or without the involvement or without the participation of a human biological father, and yet when God ordinarily gives the gift of new human life, he ordinarily uses means. And so also, God could could cause it to rain without the use of all of the winds and all of the clouds and all of the atmosphere changes, but God is ordinarily pleased to use, for example, clouds to bring rain. And God is ordinarily used, for example, uh, to bring and to use the wind uh, to create and to bring about the cross-pollination so vital for the growth of many, many a plant. Uh, God ordinarily uses these means which we call natural laws. And God even uses the activity of persons to accomplish His predetermined will. And God has so chosen to do so for reasons within Himself. And sometimes we can't explain why God uses the means that He does. But if we understand that behind all of these means is the almighty power of God, if we see the connection between the cause and the effect... That when a a human person is in my life and when they do something that impacts my life, if I am able to recognize that behind that, behind that person is the almighty power of God, it grants me a certain perception upon life that can be wonderfully comforting. I think here of the illustration of Joseph, Joseph in the Old Testament, the Joseph who came from a most dysfunctional family. The Joseph whose older brothers threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. The Joseph who then, uh, upon experiencing that traumatic childhood, rose to a level of prominence in the house of his master only to be falsely accused for the most horrific yet uncommitted sin and ended up finding himself not only sold into slavery but imprisoned in Egypt. Forgotten, you might say, by nearly everyone, including those he helped in prison. And yet upon the restoration of his lot in life, in Genesis 50, verse 20, and if you were to analyze Joseph from a psychological perspective, you would say, well, here, here certainly is an individual that would be warranted and justified to have many, many, many a grievance with many, many, many a person as his life unfolded. And yes, he tested his brothers. 
but not out of a spirit of enmity, not out of a spirit of bitterness, not out of a spirit of hate. And what was the secret to Joseph's perspective on life? He knew the reality of providence. And he knew the reality of what we call cooperation or concurrence. And he expressed this in Genesis 50, verse 20, as he speaks to his brothers. You remember the context? He's revealed himself to his brothers, and his brothers, they're terrified. They, they think, okay, now comes retaliation. Now we're going to get what we deserve. And we might say, well, well, that's expected, because that's the way we're often tempted to interact with people. Okay, you did that to me, now I'm going to do that to you. But Joseph doesn't conduct himself that way because he had an experiential, profound understanding of providence. And so he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, that is his brothers, you meant evil against me. There's no denying that. But he goes on, you see. He doesn't stop with what his brothers meant. He goes on and he says, but God meant it for good. And that, I would submit to you, is the secret behind the actions of human beings to see the action of God. Behind the actions of the mere experiences of our life to see God. And to know that God means it for good for the Christian. Even though the human agents may have meant it for evil, the problem with so many of us is that we stop there. We think, this person means evil against me. That may very well be. But is that person gone? Is that person's enmity towards me the ultimate cause of this situation in my life? No, there's a greater force beyond that person. Well, what is that greater force? Who is that greater force? Ah, it's the power of my Father. Almighty God. And he's using even perhaps these very unpleasant experiences. And he means it for good. He means it perhaps to test me, perhaps to try me, perhaps to refine me, perhaps to be a process of sanctification. But Joseph, and we often say that providence is best read Backwards, but Joseph is then able to say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And there are many, many a person also within the Christian church overwhelmed with a spirit of ingratitude, even of bitterness and hatred and anger because they cannot or they will not see behind the person who meant something evil the God who means something good. And thankfulness is then stolen away. But Joseph, he recognized concurrence, cooperation. And he could be thankful then, even in times of adversity. As so, we also ought to be following the psalmist example. Psalm 42, verse 5 and 11, hope in God, I shall yet praise him. And in Psalm 42, you'll see once again, 
There are these enemies that the psalmist experiences. There are those who scoff and say, where is your God? Verse 3. Don't be surprised, dear Christian, when you face individuals who oppose you. Don't be surprised. What saint was there ever in the Bible who went through life unopposed? What saint was there in the Bible who went through life unafflicted, unchallenged? But behind whatever afflictions, whatever persecutions come your way, with the help of Scripture and the Spirit, strive to see behind those human agents or those circumstances the hand of your heavenly Father. Then into our third point, providential government and confidence. If we believe that the almighty power of God upholds all things and uses secondary causes, including persons and other elements in creation, we can then continue in our time together to look upon this third element of providence, government. And government, not referring here to civil magistrates, to state representatives, but government in the sense of this, that God governs all things towards his predetermined goal, towards his predetermined end. That everything that happens, happens for a purpose, a purpose sometimes that we cannot perceive, but nevertheless a purpose that we believe exists God is not, and this was, uh, the well, it's somewhat recent. I think it's died down in popularity now, but open, open theism, the, this, this brutal lie that God doesn't know the future, that God is with curiosity and interest peering into the activities of humanity, wondering what will humans choose to do? What will the future be like? Such a theology is certainly not a theology that is biblical, The almighty God of heaven and earth doesn't look into the course of human history with curiosity and wondering. He is the God who knows the end from the beginning. And every single element, every single activity, every single experience that takes place from the moment in Genesis when God said, let there be light, until the conclusion as it is revealed in Revelation 22, when all things are made new, every Activity in between those two bookends is sovereignly determined by Almighty God. And they all work wonderfully together to move all things to that end, to the accomplishment of God's eternal purposes. I think here of Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, and if you find yourself you know, looking at the political news or looking at the state of the world or the state of the nation or the state of the state, whatever it might be, and if you ever find yourself overwhelmed with fear and dread and all sorts of perplexities, read Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17. For by Christ all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created, yes, through Christ the Word, but also for him. You take the most arrogant world leader, the modern day Nebuchadnezzar, the modern day Pilate, 
the modern-day Caesar. You take all of their activities, all of those persons and all those activities exist for Christ. And when they breathe out sometimes their anti-Christian threats, read Psalm 2, and what is the response of Christ? He laughs. He sits in the heaven on his royal throne with his royal scepter, having accomplished his redemptive work, and when the nations rage, Christ laughs. Because he knows that they that is, the leaders of the nations exist for the mere accomplishment of His sovereign will. And so in his interrogation, Pilate thought he had the upper hand. As he asked Christ, do you not know that your life is in my hands? And in essence, Christ said, you've got it backwards. You have no authority except that which is given to you. And Pilate did his work, his dirty work, and the Roman centurions with all of their open display of military force, the greatest army that was able to conquer the then known world, they carried out their mission for the day. They crucified the Son of God. But then Peter on the day of Pentecost in his sermon gives an understanding that recognizes this reality of government and he identifies, yes, the human agents. He says to those who are listening, you took him by lawless hands and you crucified him. But Peter did not wrangle his hands in despair because he recognized, as he also said in that text in Acts 2, you did that according to the predetermined counsel of God. Nothing happened, and nothing happens that is a mistake or an accident. Everything that happens happens as another step in the process of the history of the accomplishment of redemption, of moving us one step closer to the new heaven and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells, when the Lamb of God dwells with the Christian church. You see, this is the real secret, so to speak, of confidence. And I want to conclude this evening by asking you, whether you're here in person or whether you're listening by the means of the radio or whether you're listening by the means of the internet, what is your confidence? What is your confidence for tomorrow? What is your confidence for next week, for next year, for the next decade? And I have to say, if your confidence is based upon anything in yourself, or if your confidence is based in anything in this created world, it is not confidence. It's ignorance and arrogance. But if your confidence is based in God, in the Father, and especially His work of providence, as is unfolded in the person of Jesus Christ, then I give these words of comfort, your confidence is solid. And your confidence is sure. And even though the heart and the flesh may fail, 
your confidence will not fail. Because God's promises in Christ are yes and amen. And so there is also this encouraging call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To hope in Him. Yes, the Father and the Spirit. But to hope in Jesus Christ. Because He is the only one who grants solid, lasting confidence and comfort for time and for eternity. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us a clear revelation of these deep spiritual truths behind the existence of all things and how they are so perfectly orchestrated in Your eternal plan of infinite wisdom. Sadly, we must confess that many times we are like Your disciples of old and in the boat of our lives as the wind and as the waves seem to batter us about. uh, We cry out to You, Lord, do You not care that we are perishing? But then we are reminded that you simply stood and you commanded the storm, the wind and the waves to cease, and they had to submit to your almighty power. And may we know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you have promised that you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us. So we ask that you would give us a robust exercise of faith and a certain understanding that would grant us the ability to have peace the ability to express thankfulness, and the ability to have a confidence. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.